I think this is the first quiet moment I've had and <laughs> I think this is the first quiet moment I've had in six weeks. I'm just gonna sit here and enjoy the silence for a second. <sighs> I'm Josh Sigmund and I'm a mortgage lender. I'm also a geek for money, not just earning it and saving it, but literally everything about it. I love that money has rules, it has its truths. I love investment strategies, and I love making money work for us. For so many, money is emotional. For me, it's logical, like a puzzle. My passion is also helping others with their money. I love looking at people's finances, dissecting their puzzle, and rebuilding with strategy and purpose, and I'm really good at it. I'm making this podcast about my money strategies, not the things that are written in books or sold in programs. It's a podcast outlining the lessons I've learned and used for the past 15 years. These strategies help me and those who use them save more, give more, create wealth, and retire early. Let me teach you how to build your net worth. You ready? Welcome to Sigmund Sense. Well, I'm going to start with a story. I think it's a good story in general because here we are in yet another week of quarantine and uh, people are still going a little bit crazy and I for sure am going a little bit stir crazy. Uh, I'm going to invest in probably every travel company in America, in every hotel in America uh, when this is all said and done with because I've got a feeling people are going to be antsy to get out and, and go get away from their freaking house. Um, so... What I want to talk about today uh, to start with is something about mindset because when it really comes down to it, you know, um, we, we, we know that investing in general or money management in general always starts with a good mindset. But I also think that since we're going to have this kind of new normal for a longer period of time than people care to admit, and even when there's a little bit like we're starting to have a little bit of back to work, um, you know, we might be called back home again in three months and uh, certain people are still not going to go to work anyways. They're going to choose to work from home indefinitely. And uh, there'll be some ripple effects into the unemployment rates and ripple effects into uh, what happens with forbearances and things like that. My point is that so much about how we approach life is about how we manage our own mindset. So I was having a great conversation with somebody, uh, a good friend of mine named Doug. And uh, Doug was telling me about this young lady that was um, complaining because she hadn't gotten a chance to see her friends in a long time. And uh, her dad is a famous chef and uh, her dad kind of let, you know, we, we want to let our children speak and get it all out. But um, as the days went on, the weeks went on, finally the dad said, come into here and, you know, because they live in a beautiful house and the chef cooks really good food. So there's worse places to be quarantined. Uh, but, but called in his daughter into the kitchen and, and started boiling three pots of water. And uh, in one pot of water, after it started boiling, he put a potato. In another pot of water, uh, after it was boiling, he put some eggs. And in the third pot of water, he put some coffee, uh, coffee beans. And he boiled all of it for 10 minutes. And then after 10 minutes, what he did is he turned it back over to um, uh, his daughter and said, hey, which one of the three are you? And... Um, the daughter was very confused. So I have no idea what you're talking about, Pops. You've got a little bit stir crazy, it looks like. And at the end of the day, what the dad said is, look, uh, we are all in different crazy environments that do change. 
Um, you know, no one expected the stock market to take the hammer it did early in the year. Uh, no one expected to have a loved one get sick with a foreign coronavirus disease. Uh, no one certainly expected to be stuck in their house or their uh, apartment complex for as long as we've all uh, done this. Um, but he said, at the end of the day, that is just the environment around you. He said, so you get to choose which one you want to be. So let's look at this potato, for instance. And he pulled out the potato and he started pushing on it. And of course, the potato had gotten soft. He said, listen, some people, when they uh, react to adverse environments, um, they go soft. And uh, what, what that typically is, is that uh, they turn into the victim mindset and woe is me. And they don't do anything. And they uh, just kind of let the world have to happen to them. And I don't know about you, but I don't like mushy potatoes. And so many of Americans and people in the world are kind of seeing back uh, digressing. Maybe they were on a diet plan beforehand and they gained some weight since then. Um, maybe some people were really working on uh, classes and studies and they look at this as an extended spring break rather than getting ahead of their, their peer group by continuing to read. Um, so that's the potato mentality. The middle group is the eggs and the eggs are, they get super hard, right? The hard boiled eggs. And what I think that this becomes is people get super, some people get callous and their heart hardens. And, um, you know, when things that are happening in the world, uh, that they don't like, they, they create this really, um, horrible shell around them. And because they are so unhappy and, uh, and uh, uncertain about the world, they lose empathy about what how other people around them are dealing with it themselves. Uh, and what happens ultimately is when somebody gets super hard of the heart, they lose the perspective of gratitude about what they're actually lucky to have. Uh, you know, today uh, was my son's 10th birthday and I've got a healthy, wonderful, gorgeous young boy uh, who I couldn't be more proud of and um, wouldn't change it for the world let alone my two daughters and my wife, right? But I have tons of stresses in my life too. You know, uh, mortgage industry is super stressful. Uh, everyone is uh, either looking to buy or refinance, uh, but at the same time, there's some challenges that the CARES Act put onto the mortgage industry. And so as a result, it's very easy to, to put up that, that wall and create that shell and, um, and not be as uh, empathetic because we're so busy uh, which we're blessed and grateful to have all the business, but maybe uh, I've been guilty of being short with a client before or short with a referring partner before because I'm just busy. And that loss of empathy and perspective is something we need to avoid as well. And so the third thing was the coffee, which of course turned the water itself into coffee. So the coffee beans changed the water into coffee, but the beans themselves didn't change. It, the beans changed the environment around them. And clearly the moral of the story is that we all need to be more like the coffee bean. Uh, we got to stay being who we are and true to ourselves and do a better job of impacting and influencing positively the world around us because God knows that everyone needs a good cup of coffee. Um, so I'm starting this way with this story because I feel that a lot of people put their lives on hold with what's going on. And um, whether that be the, we'll wait and see what happens next, uh, whether that be that they feed into the fear uh, or that they are truly at a loss, whether it's with a, a health situation or uh, economic situation, most people that I see are, are 
stopping. You know, they're doing enough to get by, but that's all they're doing. They're not taking the bull by the horns and saying, screw it, this is the new world we live in. Until further notice, carry on. And they're not looking at it from the perspective of, let's crush our goals. And of course, this is a money conversation. That's the purpose of the podcast. And so I really want to kind of remind people that uh, it might have been a great time to finally do the budgeting for sure, especially if you lost a job or had a, a decrease in income. But on the flip side, uh, quite, you know, we, we put out the word to a lot of viewers to find out like what are the questions that you ask. And the topic of the day is, uh, when's a good time to invest? And I think that's a far-reaching question. And I think it's a valid question because you know everyone's at different stages of their income, life, savings, debt, all those things. So when's a good time? And I, I kind of want to walk through some basic ideas around this because uh, while I'm not a stockbroker and I'm not for sure going to give any stock picks, uh, what I am going to suggest is what I see uh, that are uh, um, when people start to get on the positive side of things, meaning they have some cash they're saving or they have some income stream that they could divert to other directions, um, I see the same thing starting to happen. You know, it's the, whether it's the lack of education of what to do or how to do it or who to give it to or whatever. Um, I see people that come in for a mortgage that they've amassed some wealth, um, 50,000 bucks. I've seen 300,000 bucks. I told you I saw $7 million in a checking account. Now, that's not a great and appropriate place for money, especially if that's not even FDIC insured at that level. Uh, but my point in saying this is that why is it or what's the holdup of when there's some extra means, some left over, why wouldn't we put that to work? And when should you and how should you? And that's really what I want to address today. So when I kind of uh, start thinking about this, um, the easiest way to start is by saying you can't borrow for uh, uh, your retirement. You cannot borrow for retirement. And so the, the, the basic answer is as far as when you should start saving, the answer is as early as freaking possible. Um, we know that. We've talked about that in a previous podcast because time value of money does matter. As your money works for you or against you at a rate of return of 3 or 5 or 10 or 20%, whatever the rate of return is, there's a multiplying effect as the money doubles and triples and quadruples the longer that it's working for you. And, and fast, if it flips faster, obviously, the higher the rate that it's working for you, which is basically the velocity of money. But the, certainly the answer is as soon as possible. You know, if you have the means to start saving for kids' retirement or for, and I said that, yes, kids' retirement, or for kids' college, it's better to start putting something aside at day one than it is to start thinking about college uh, if you're going to help pay for college in any way at freshman year of high school. And uh, so earlier is better. And it doesn't matter how much it is. It's that that habit of starting to set aside some money somewhere, autopilot, that you don't have to think about it. That is the main game. And so if I was trying to give a specific easiest tool you can do, it's to set up a automatic withdrawal from your checking or savings, or even better, directly from your paycheck to someplace. And we'll get into the different options, but someplace that is out of reach of your hands, someplace that is going to go to work for you so that you don't even think that it's your money, so you don't spend it because it's in your checking account. Uh, but we got to get that moving somewhere. And what ends up happening, what you'll notice is over time, you don't miss that money. And so the next game would be to increase that number. 
whether that be because your your debts are going down or your uh, or your income is going up, you know, ratcheting that amount that you're you're siphoning off the sidelines, monthly recurring or paycheck recurring siphoning of money away from your hands, the more you do that as a habit, the more and faster and easier it is to build wealth. Um, and so, kind of deciding what that is that you can do do or what your budget is and. Of course, the long-term goal is the 30, 30, 10, 30, but it might be 50 bucks to start with. It might be $5,000 today that you need to do because you're behind the game and you need to start saving away some serious money. Um, so where should you do that? Um, my first, second, third, fourth, and fifth answer will not change. So let's just put aside for a second debt reduction. Let's assume that you're doing a decent job of, of, uh, of hitting that uh, or knocking that down and or you're out of debt. The first step I really fundamentally believe in is make sure that you're setting aside that float account. Uh, I can tell you right now that people that have a float account are super appreciating it in this uncertain time. Um, while we're in this coronavirus pandemic, while people are you know, starting to worry about uh, incomes or loss of uh, income or loss of jobs, uh, the ability to pay bills, people that have a float balance right now are sitting pretty because they're not making emotional decisions that are not having to think about selling a house, you know, prematurely. They're not having to think about taking a withdrawal from a 401k or something like that because they had that float account built. And so if you are that person that doesn't have a float about account built, uh, don't, don't listen to this and say, well, that's not me. Learn from it. Because what we know in history is this shit's going to happen again. It doesn't have to be a pandemic, but there will be a disruption again in your life at some point, whether it's health related, uh, whether it's job related, whether it's divorce related, whether it's death related, whether it's disability related, whether it's, you know, the five D's are always the bad ones, right? Drinking, drugs, disability, death, and divorce. Um, those are basic disruptions. And then all the stuff that we haven't even dreamt of yet, like a cyber attack on your company or whatever. My point is, is that uh, we got to get away from this on-demand mentality of my paycheck comes in, I get what I want when I want it. We got to have some reserves. So build the reserves. I would argue that the initial guideline of three to six months of survival number reserves, you might think about being more conservative. You know, I've moved my needle to a year, a full year of paychecks, a full year of not just survival number, but a full year of, uh, of expenses of all kind. I set aside in cash so that I can make good decisions for my family and good decisions for my business unemotionally because I'm not worrying about can I pay next month's rent, utilities, mortgage payment, blah, 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 blah. It's set aside in cash for 12 months, so I'm prepared. So building that up because we know that even on a smaller spectrum, if we built it up to at least three or six months and that's you've never had that done before, um, at least you have something to dip into in a normal environment when your tires get get you know get you know stabbed at a at a bar, or you know you have a, a unforeseen expense because your kid all, all of a sudden turned out to be a superstar and decided to join the most elite team in the city and it costs an extra three thousand bucks to participate in this crazy team, which happens here in you know all of the United States. So that's why we start there. Second. You always want to take advantage of all of your tax-free or tax-deferred accounts. So whether that be a 401k, an IRA, an SCP, um, 
any number of, uh, of, of those types of accounts, you want to now maximize the savings by minimizing either today's or future's taxation of that money that's going towards retirement or going towards this, the same thing applies towards going towards college accounts, right? Uh, I think they're called 403Bs, if I'm not mistaken, or 503. It's four, it doesn't matter about financial planner. Uh, setting aside for uh, college, there are uh, the advantages there as well that are tax deferred as well. Um, so maximizing those as your second step um, after you get the reserves because you're kind of getting your, a double bang for the buck or a triple bang for the buck. So think of it like this. We know that uh, just use a 401k and let's assume that that 401k has a matching program of, of even 3%, okay? Well, what that means is if, you're, if, if your income is, is $100,000 and you decide to set $1,000 a month into your 401k, that $1,000 now goes over to this other you know, money before you can use it, this other account before you can spend it. Um, but it also um, diminishes the amount of your taxation for the year. So now you're going to be taxed on 88,000 bucks instead of on 100,000 bucks. Uh, so the, at the end of the year, you pay less taxes because it's tax deferred, right? Um, what that means is at the end of it, you'll be you'll pay taxes when you start pulling money in retire, uh, out of retirement in the future, but hopefully that's 10, 20, 30, 40 years later. So you get the benefit of, you get a return year one and every year because you're paying less in taxes. So there's that extra benefit. The triple benefit though, is if you get a matching, you get free money from your employer, free extra money that can be thrown into this account on top of the 12,000. Um, so if you've got this matching program where they might set aside two, three, four, five, up to 6% usually um, of the contributions, you're going to get a couple extra thousand bucks that you didn't earn. It was given to you because your employer is kind enough to motivate uh, or not even motivate. They're kind enough to care enough about your retirement that they help participate in it, which is a really big benefit. Um, if you don't have access to 401k or, or, or an SCP, you know, everyone has access under a certain income threshold that changes annually uh, to a, a, a Roth IRA. A Roth IRA is great uh, in a different way. And I personally believe in maximizing this every year until you can't. But the point is, is that you're able to invest in a Roth IRA with uh, post-tax dollars, meaning you're paying money, you're paying tax on the money that you're buying the Roth IRA with, but that then grows for the next 20, 30, 40, or 50 years, and you never pay taxes on withdrawal. So if you think about maybe you, you're able to, before you can't invest anymore, you might invest 50, 100, $200,000 that's now growing at 6% annually for 30 years. And it's worth five, six, eight hundred, a million bucks by the time you need it. If you're, if you don't need it for forty years, well, all that growth, that extra eight hundred thousand on the two hundred thousand that you invested, you don't have to pay taxes on that growth because you pay taxes up front. And so that's why uh, you would want to always take advantage of that as the after you've set aside savings to protect yourself to make you feel good about um, covering bills with disruptions that float account, then you start maximizing those retirement vehicles and the tax-free or tax-deferred options that are available in the United States. Now, let's just assume that we've tapped out or you don't have the access to any more of those types of uh, investment opportunities, okay? Um, 
From here, you, you most families are going two directions and a lot of times, hopefully simultaneously. You know, I'm not going to go down the road of buy a house, um, but that is part of the next part of investment of where you should put your cash because uh, as long as you plan to be somewhere for some for some period of time, the truth of the matter is it's one of the only appreciating assets that's leveraged, meaning uh, from the amount of money that you, you don't have to pay for a house in cash. You can put down a small down payment or no down payment depending on the loan type. And as that house appreciates for five or 10 years, it's based on the value of the house. You might have bought the house for 300000 that three hundred thousand dollar house grows to three fifty, but you only had to put down ten thousand dollars to buy it. You're not getting growth on the ten thousand. You're getting growth on the on the on the three hundred thousand. So it's one of those awesome vehicles for building wealth uh, over time. Um, it's just definitely a place you should go. But that's a different podcast. I don't want to dive into the extra wise. But there's got to be a point where you look at how much you spend in rent. And if you are looking at your job as a reasonably good chance, I'm going to keep this job long-term or improve my income, and you're going to be in a location for a reasonable period of time, three three years or more, that you believe that um, there's no reason why you would be forced to move or leave the area, then buy a house and stop paying for somebody else's rent. Go buy your own so, so you have your money working for you, leverage up extra tax deductions, all the benefits of it. Uh, that are uh, that are super important. Hopefully, simultaneously, though, you've got to realize that you can borrow for a house, you can't borrow for retirement. So I have seen clients that have taken, you know, they have their $100,000 that they've amassed because they were good and diligent soldiers saving money for 10 years, the new, you know, dual income family, uh, uh, what do they say, dual income, no kids. And they save up 100000 because those little buggers are ex- expensive. And they go buy a house and, and they, they tell me, Josh, I want to buy a $150,000 house and put $100,000 down. And I'll say, okay, cool. What's your retirement uh, look like? And they, they won't have one. And my answer is, well, don't put down the whole $100,000 in the house. Do a, uh, put down as much money as it takes to pay, make your payment comfortable, not a dollar more, and take the difference and invest that uh, in a, as, as much as your risk tolerance allows into the market. Okay. So the market is a broad scope. And I get that because the market consists of, you know, bonds, they consist of stocks, they consist of indexes, they consist of uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, But you got to get it working for you. And the reason why I say that is if you just leave it in checking and savings, um, you're losing value annually because inflation is greater than what the interest rate is on your checking account. Meaning if your interest-bearing account is only 0.25% and inflation is 3%, then what the money could buy today, you decrease by 3% what it could buy in a year, right? So you have to have, you have to make sure your money is at least out-earning inflation because over the long term, that is such a drag that people don't understand how much it's impacting them negatively. Um, just think in terms of, you know, I hate to play the old, you know, what my grandpa used to pay, but uh, if you ever talked with, spoke with an old guy about what he used to pay for milk or eggs, wasn't much. You know, either, you could talk to an old grandpa about uh, penny candies, like penny as in a cent candies. You go to a gas station now and a Kit Kat's freaking two and a half bucks, right? And you can do that even down to a shorter period of time 
you know, I'm not a young man anymore. I'll call that a middle age because I'm 41 now. But I'm not old old either. And I do remember uh, just in a 10-year period of time that the cost of milk and eggs, uh, just basic commodities have doubled. So if I still want to feed my kids, it just costs more today to buy the same crap, right? Um, although I'm not going to say milk and eggs is crap. I think that's very healthy for you. Um, as long as it's uh, all, you know, I'm not going to go down the nutritional side of things, but, um, you know, it's the same old crap. Let's just call it what it is. So as we're doing this and we're looking at getting it to work for you, this is where uh, I see the stalling point happen for most people, right? Like I don't find too often that people aren't motivated to buy a house because it seems like kind of the next step, right? You, you've been renting long enough. Your family size is growing. You've been earning some income. You feel pretty good about your job. You know that your kids are going to start in this school. Um, people don't have to be talked into buying a property most of the time because they have to live somewhere. So they might as well earn, uh, own it. And quite often in some places, the cost of rent, the cost of mortgage are about the same. Uh, and so that's not a hard one to talk people into. But this is where I'm trying to explain that I see uh, daily way too much money in a checking or savings account little or no retirement set aside. And the, and that might be for 10 years or 30 years. And the question is why? And what I think the answer is for most people is one of two things. Uh, the first one is lack of education. They don't know what to do with it uh, or they don't know where to go, right? Uh, because this is our hard-earned nest egg and I get that. And everyone's got a different number about what they feel safe with as my nest egg in the bank you know, there's, uh, I remember as a kid, I'm sure you guys all relate to this, that uh, whatever your piggy bank was, your hidden spot, you know, you uh, do some chores, you might get get a, a stipend and, you're, and you'd every once in a while, I remember pulling out and counting every single penny and every single nickel and every single dime and stacking all the dollar bills neatly in the $5 and $10 and $20 bills that I got for Christmas or whatever. And I remember adding them all up and I put it away in my little hidey hole and it just made me feel safe right? Well, we're still kids. We're adult children. Um, but we still have that same mentality and everyone's number is different. And this goes to your risk tolerance, right? Uh, some people are uh, so free-spirited uh, or faith-based or there's lots of reasons here that they're like, you know, it's always worked out. If Worst case scenario, if I lost all my money, I'd earn some again. Um, God will provide whatever the mentality is. Some people have no problem going and doing those investments. And so they don't mind having very little in the bank left over because they'll just figure it out, right? On the flip side, uh, remember uh, separate of the education, going to this, this feeling, some people um, are truly afraid of losing it all um, and or they've lost. They've already experienced lost and their experience doesn't have to be them personally. So you, they might remember their dad foreclosing on a property, their mom going bankrupt, their uh, their granddad uh, barely making it by. Uh, they might have personally uh, been wiped out or almost wiped out in the stock market, uh, of uh, whether it's 2001 when they bailed out the bottom, 2007, 8 when they bailed out the bottom. Maybe somebody just sold all their stuff at 18,000 uh, here a couple of weeks ago 
They experienced loss, but the point is it doesn't have to be that they experienced it personally. They could have learned that from a parent or, or a friend and like, I don't want that because I'm risk averse, right? So with that knowledge then, when you really keep on working through this, uh, this is why you need to sit down with a professional. Um, you know, I truly encourage everyone to go find a financial planner. Even if you're super smart and you think you can do your own stock trading, don't be stupid. Uh, it's kind of like real estate agents uh, or any financial, you know, loan officers. Uh, you don't really need a good one until you need a good one, right? Um, I, I buy houses all the time. I've never bought a house without a realtor ever. I read contracts. I know how to do contracts. I still pay a professional, not for the nine out of 10 times that I could have filled it out myself, because the one out of 10 times that there's a real problem that I need a real professional to help me troubleshoot or use their insurance or whatever um, to kind of navigate the uncharted waters, right? So that one out of 10 is worth the other nine commissions that I paid. It doesn't matter. The same thing applies to financial planner um, because what they're going to do, any good financial planner that's worth, worth their salt, the first conversation that I do, they're going to give you a test that really, t- you know, tests your risk tolerance and also looks at your goals for your horizon uh, before you retire, the amount of time before you retire, and your potential savings between now and then, and how much money that you want to have in retirement. And they compile all that information to let you know, are you not on track? Are you on track with some tweaks? Could you be on track? And based on your risk tolerance, here's what I would invest in, right? Um, Only because I studied this in school a little bit, did I just approach it uh, as a young man, you know, 22 years old, uh, starting to invest 50 bucks a month with Edward Jones at the very beginning, 50 to 100 bucks a month is always investing. Did I understand that, you know, uh, growth or aggressive is is right for the long term if you've got a long time horizon and you don't expect to need the money? If you are three years away from retirement or five years away from retirement, you can't afford to be super aggressive because if you lost a lot of money like the beginning of this year, you don't have a lot of years to make it back up. So it's better to protect the downside than to be aggressive on the upside. So that horizon and your ability to not throw up when you lose money in the stock market or whatever investments you're doing kind of will dictate where you should be investing. And this is why you have to really trust the individual that you're working with. And you should interview and interview and interview and ask tough questions because you know, you're betting your future on this person, right? Um, and it's okay to second guess. It's okay to ask interview questions. But uh, what I've never found is um, fear to be a good reason to do or not do anything. And so if it's just because you're afraid of the unknown about, oh, I, what if I put my money in the stock market and then I lost 10%? That's not a good reason to do it, but it's also not a good reason to not invest either. What it means is seek more information. <laughs> and so this is the name of the game at this stage, which is, and I'm proud of you if you're listening, it's just education, 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 because in the other investments we're going to get into, uh, I recommend that you at least have a, a basic understanding of what you're getting yourself into. You know, one of the things that's uh, interesting to me with uh, some of my past clients that buy, how few people have quality questions about understanding the mortgage process, like real quality questions well, what if we did this? Well, what if we did that? What does this mean? Uh, just even down to how few people read the docu-signs, right? Uh, you know, what, there's 60 pages of, of mortgage docs that everyone signs. Uh, I always know the attorneys, 
Juries will call me and ask me about every single question. I always know the C personalities because they'll, you know, correct uh, my dependents' ages are now a year older or whatever than the last time I did their mortgage. Um, but very few people read it. And even if they do read it, the lack of understanding is something that just as a, an example, you know, we have to be curious. It doesn't mean don't do something. It just means be curious, ask questions. The more you ask, the more uh, risk you're willing to take on because you understand the risk. And that's the name of the game. You know, people ask me why I invest so much in real estate as a whole, right? Between I do hard money loans, I do property flips, I do spec homes, I do um, all sorts of what people would think would be crazy, you know, getting into development right now, just high cost, high risk investments, right? Well, my, it's a real basic answer. Guess what my profession is? You know, <laughs> I understand the risk in real estate because I do this for a living. So, I feel more comfortable with a higher threshold. And my financial planners, uh, two of them, both of them tell me, Josh, you know, you understand this downtime with this weird cycle with the coronavirus. There'll be opportunity in real estate in the coming 12 months. Keep some of your cash to invest in what you know. So that's what a good, uh, uh, somebody with good advice will tell you is to invest in things that you know and you understand. Let me tell you what not to invest in, right? So, uh, I've invested in two movies before. Um, I don't recall being a movie producer, a movie director, an actor ever, but it sounded pretty freaking cool. And I trusted the guy that was doing it and thank God I didn't lose money on him. But I would say that was a stupid ass investment for me. Um, and I did two of them to the tune of uh, uh, 150,000 bucks of investments. Who knew? I just got lucky on those. Will I ever invest in movies again? No, it's not what I know, right? Um, when I look back at the properties I lost on or the, or the uh, hard money loan that I lost on or the restaurant that I lost on or the bar I lost on, we'll go into a different podcast and all the places I've lost money. It was always because I didn't know enough about what I was investing in. I didn't understand it. So I didn't know what to look for, what the very apparent problems were up front that if I had just asked better questions, I would have saved myself some heartache. And so don't avoid it. Just ask, read, study, become curious about uh, this environment. Because the flip side is, is that because of an innate nor uh, higher than average risk tolerance, and uh, because of some discipline with budging early, I was able to invest and learn a lot of things that were interesting to me and not ever get really hurt right? Um, oh, one question that I have out uh, for people or one statement I have for people is that you really need to look at um, the maximum you would invest in anything that would be in what you would consider your highest risk, risk tolerance, right? So let's say that you are uh, net worth a quarter million bucks. Let's say that you have 50,000 of equity in your house. You've got 100,000 over the last decade that's been put into your 401k. So you've got some decent stuff going there. Uh, you've got uh, you and your husband both uh, or, or wife both have, you know, 50 to 75, 50 to 100,000 of, uh, of other assets, whether they be stocks or equivalents, life insurance or equivalents, or just cash in the bank. Um, you know, what, and this opportunity comes along, right? Because there's always, anyone that has money in their pocketbook, there's always opportunities. So this, this person comes to you and you'd like this person, you trust this person, they're a bar owner, they're looking for investors. Uh, how much should I go in? And one thing one of my mentors told me 
15 years ago that saved my butt in a lot of ways. He said, never invest more than 10% of your net worth in anything uh, that you're not willing to lose 100% of, right? So my mindset has always been, okay, if I'm going to invest in that bar, that restaurant or uh, business or land or whatever, if it's something I don't really understand, so it's on the higher threshold of risk, I'm never going to put more than 10% of my net worth at risk ever, no matter how possible or how big that upside might be. Um, but that's a risk I'm willing to assume. So when I write those checks, I literally mentally assume I'm going to lose everything. If I'm not willing to assume I'm going to lose everything on that investment because it's something that's risky and I don't understand fully, I shouldn't be making that investment. So because I'm a gambler, yes, I go to Vegas. Uh, I used to go way more than I do now because I'm trying to stay away from that stuff. Um, I'm just willing to roll the dice because, you know, uh, to much this, uh, you know, if you risk big, you can gain big. Um, but that doesn't mean it's right for you. So setting a, a threshold that probably shouldn't exceed 10%, maybe it should be less for you based on where you are in your life or how much hit you could take because you're too close to retirement as it stands. But setting a rule that you stick by that, all right, son, I'll invest in your business because I love you and you're graduating from college and you want to be a deer breeder. And so I want to invest in the deer herd for you. You don't put half your freaking net worth into that because you love your son. That's still a risky investment, even though you trust the kid. But putting a threshold and creating those rules of 5 or 10% max uh, is something I think would, would really serve everyone really well in this. So from here, you're kind of at this place now where maybe you've got, um, you're, you're doing pretty good. You might still have some debt, but it's going the right direction. You've got your float account behind you. You're maximizing your uh, tax-deferred retirement vehicles. You've met with and are starting to tickle with a financial planner. Uh, you've probably bought your first home by now. And, you know, where do, where do you go from here? Because really the sky's the limit, right? Um, I'll tell you, I just want to give some really basic guidelines that, that have served me well. And I, I interviewed a few other people about this just to kind of figure out where they where their thoughts were when it came to buying a specific investment property for real estate. And also, where does it make more sense to stay uh, in a mutual fund, for example, or an index fund compared to buying individual stocks and or being more aggressive uh, with that uh, side of the business, getting you know, a, a fund manager, things like that. And so let's start with the, the real estate investment side. The, the main... Uh, thing that you got to watch out for is that the minimum down payment for an investment property is 15% down, but the best rates and fees to buy a real estate investment property are 20% or 25% down. So I wouldn't personally buy an investment property if you couldn't put down 20%. And that's usually enough of a limiting factor for most people that they never get into it. Uh, with the precursor of unless you buy a house that you live in for a few years and you move, keep that one. That's your first investment property and just buy another one uh, with another low down payment, right? So with the, with, the, with the exception of leaving your house, because not all houses just because you're leaving are good investment properties. So again, consultation of a property manager, what could they rent it for? Or a real estate advisor of, you know, is it better to, to shave $100,000 of equity or is it better to make $100 a month of rent? Because you, you got to look at that. Um, but a good advisor will, will give you good advice on should you retain it then you got to put down at least 20% down to buy an investment property. So what is really the threshold there? 
I think it's okay to start small. Like most people think that I wouldn't live in that so I can keep it as an investment property. The beautiful thing about investment properties is the math works or it doesn't, right? So a $100,000 house, a $80,000 house, a one fifty house uh, might not be, it might be perfect for you, but it might not be something that you would live in yourself. Maybe you're accustomed to a $300,000 house or a $500,000 house, doesn't matter. Um, you got to remember that um, housing needs are real for many, 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 many Americans. And in um, city to city, but I'm just going to use Texas as a microcosm because Texas is outperforming most states in all areas, real estate and, and rental. Um, you know, we have so many people moving here that house prices are going up because of supply and demand. There's a demand for more housing, but it's going up also in rents as well. Because, you know, every year a tenant might have, or sorry, a landlord might have higher tax and insurance and they can just charge more if, if there's fewer houses in that neighborhood, if they keep the house desirable. Um, so, you know, if you've got a $100,000 property, you're doing with $20,000 down for the down payment plus call it five or 6000 for closing costs. That's really what you're dealing with. Um, so to be able to part with that, as long as you don't, that doesn't, make you dip below your um, float account requirement, the comfort level for you, I think it's an okay investment. I think it's a safe investment in general, done right, um, with good advisors. I think that as long as you don't dip into your float account, you're okay. Meaning you might have a float account of, of a year, but you only comfort-wise are good with three months is all you need. Um, so if you can bridge that gap in six months of it, you can apply towards a, a, that's a great investment opportunity. Okay. Um, the second answer would be, um, with that would be only if you have a pretty sure job, uh, constant job, years on the job, uh, growth opportunity to make more income as well. You know, if you're going to dip down to just the bare minimum, that's a really bad time to lose a job, right? Uh, hopefully the rental property will pay for itself, but it doesn't always right off the bat because you might have to repaint it, recarpet it, and then wait a month or two to get it leased out before you're actually having money to pay for the mortgage. Um, so you gotta be careful there. Um, but that would be the minimum I would say is at least that comfort level with your float account. Um, there's no maximum, you know, uh, as you go, I found the people that buy rental properties are addicted to it when it works, it works and you keep on buying them and it just seems to work better over time and you learn your lessons. And yes, there's crappy tenants. And yes, there's times that the dog ate the corner of the house and that's part of being a landlord. So that's part of that risk. No different than the risk of investing in a stock. And then if you're invested in airline stocks right now, they went down because people aren't flying right now. If you're invested in Carnival Cruise Lines, it went down, wasn't expected. It went down because people aren't, aren't sailing right now. Um, so again, it's part of the assumption of risk and understanding what the risk really is. And are you okay with it? You know, I've, I uh, invested in Disney. I've always invested in Disney. And Disney's down because people don't want to be around the other million people when they're afraid of getting a disease. And uh, But I'm not going to sell it because my investment mindset was I'm buying this for retirement. I'm not buying this investment for the need for tomorrow. So that's more the answer of when you, when's the right time. There's no way to get into investment properties without some level of leap of faith. You know, I've been talking to my buddy Matt Green for years and years and years and years and years about it. And he's, uh, he's like an awesome friend of mine that's a, a real estate uh, up-and-coming investor, we'll call it that. 
Um, and the biggest problem he had at the very beginning was the paralysis of analysis they did for years and years and years before he actually started to jump into real estate. On the flip side, I've got a good personal friend of mine and client named Abel Pacheco. Uh, I've worked with over a decade. I'm actually going to interview him on this at some point. I remember sitting down with Abel in my lo- doing a loan application for him actually about 15 years ago. And he said, and, and you've got to remember this is he was at Rackspace at the time, a great company locally in San Antonio, had a great job, but just starting out with savings. He's like, how do I get into investments? And I told him what I told you guys, which is buy a house, keep it for two years, leave it, keep the property. And here he is. And he's got hundreds of doors now, as in hundreds of rental doors that he personally owns. Yeah, and I'm super excited to interview him in a future point. But he just took the leap of faith and he got addicted to it and he got pretty damn good at it is the answer. Um, and so, again, risk tolerance. When are you willing to make that jump? Some people never will. Okay. Let's go the other direction, which is, okay, I want to outperform the freaking uh, uh, inflation rate. I'm going to take that leap and try, trust, trust somebody's advice. And some of us are not very trusting. We're not, uh, tr- uh, not that we're not trustworthy. We're not trusting in other people's word. Um, but at some point you're taking a leap of faith to give money to a, a financial planner that gets a commission to, to have your money. So is it because they want the money for the commission or are they trying to help you with your retirement? At some point you're going to take the leap of faith. I think the best answer there is for me personally, if you've got a longer horizon, 10 years or more would be, I would say a longer horizon, the more, the better. You really just want to invest in mutual funds and index funds only, only, for that segment of money that you hope you never need. You're going to set aside, it's going to grow for you, and you never want to dip into it, never want to get a loan against it, never want to borrow from it, never want to withdraw from it until you need it for retirement. So if you're willing to do that mindset, uh, I think up to about a half a million bucks, don't get fancy, don't do individual stock picks. Slow and steady wins the race. Remember, it's about not losing money more so than it's about earning a big return. And when I see people chasing returns, trying to do their day trading and stock picking, yes, you can make some incredible wins, but holy crap, you have some incredible losses too when you pick wrong. And um, just remember, you can't compound a negative. So if you lost 25%, you have to make like 35% back to make back to even. Um, so it's super important to understand, like if you're gonna if you're gonna do that individual game, you know, think about like people in, in investing in, in the bitcoins and things like that. I don't think it's really that appropriate when you're when you're less than six figures. Um, you know, you're trying to build that that crucial mass. I remember a conversation with Ron 20 years ago uh, when I was complaining, saying, "Dude, get, saving 100 bucks a month doesn't really do anything." He's like, "It does. It does do something. It's a start. It's the habit." He said, "But one day you're going to tell me that uh, you remember this conversation when you hit a critical mass." And what a critical mass is when there's enough money, enough money that's invested working for you, however it's working for you, because you want the money to work for you, little dollar bills, little generals, little George Washingtons and Lincolns that are, that are working for you on a daily basis in addition to what you're doing to earn for you on a daily basis. Um, there's a critical mass where all of a sudden the amount of money that the money earns for you actually is greater in a month than what you earned yourself. And that's, that is the beautiful thing about it. But it's about getting to that critical mass. So getting up a couple hundred thousand, a half million, I think it's a conservative, logical approach to don't lose me as much. I'm not trying to chase returns. Six to, six to 7% would be a great long-term goal for most people. And that's up to about a half a million. 
um, sorry, about a 500,000. Once you're past that point, you might stay the course. You might be thrilled with what's going on and you might be comfortable. But only after that would I recommend getting into some alternative investments, riskier investments. For me, that's the truth. Uh, for me, it's, um, you know, once you've got the dog, you know, you, you don't want to have start off at 20 and get up to 35 and then get it all wiped out because you're in risky investments because you were having fun. And now you're starting again saving at 35. But just remember you lost that last double and that last double again because you could have been, if you still had that money in hand that was still working for you, it was worth way more uh, at age 65 because you started saving at 20, right? So keep your money, uh, hedge, be somewhat conservative, but just look long-term and, and don't chase returns is my best advice. You know, once you're at a half million, maybe a million, maybe more, uh, and for some, it's going to be lower than half a million. You might be ready to do it at 100,000. That's, that's your prerogative. Um, that's when you might get into some outli- outliers, you know, the outliers of trying to be an individual stock picker, trying to, uh, you know, move money out of uh, the Fortune 500 to the Fortune 100, depending on the cycle of the ups and downs of the market. That might be when you uh, choose to uh, put money to work in the industry that you're in, right? There, there might be somebody that's a tech guy that works with you that you appreciate is super smart, that you've got a great relationship with. You're an IT programmer, they're an IT programmer. They pitch you an idea about this other company or this other product that they want to build out and they're looking for investors. Because you are an IT programmer, you understand the risk there. That might be when you throw somebody over there and say, you know what? I understand I could lose it all, but shit, this might be a really great idea because I understand the risk and I trust the person. And I always tell people when you're investing in businesses, it's, it's about the leader. Who are you investing in? If you believe the person that they're the, they wake up first in the morning, they walk, talk, sweat, their business, their product, they are the most knowledgeable, they are the most energetic, they're the most passionate about whatever they do, I invest in people like that, but not early on, right? Um, and so that's kind of the guidance I would give in general. So what I was trying to get at here is most of the reason for people not investing it, once they do have something is, again, a reminder. It's a fear or a personal loss that they or a loved one already experienced or lack of knowledge. If we believe that fear is not a reason to do or not do anything, you can remove that from the equation, which just goes back to the pursuit of knowledge. So this is Josh Sigmund with Sigmund Sense. If you'd like more information about anything I spoke about or introductions to people that I know, please reach out. Uh, please like and subscribe. Uh, please share this information with other people that might need some uh, spurs in their butt to get things moving. But uh, if you have questions, we'd love to hear from you. Keep your hands clean, put your masks on, get used to business as usual. And just remember at the end of the day, uh, be the coffee. Don't be the potato. Don't be the egg. Be the coffee bean. God bless you. Take care. Bye-bye.